Moreover, this doctrine affords glorious consolation under the cross and amid temptations, namely, that God in His counsel, before the time of the world, determined and decreed that He would assist us in all distresses, grant patience, give consolation, excite hope, and produce such an outcome as would contribute to our salvation. Also, as Paul in a very consolatory way treats this, Romans 8, 28, 29, 35, 38, 39, that God in his purpose has ordained before the time of the world by what crosses and sufferings he would conform every one of his elect to the image of his Son, and that to everyone his cross shall and must work together for good, because they are called according to the purpose whence Paul has concluded that it is certain and indubitable, that neither tribulation, nor distress, nor death, nor life, etc., shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This article also affords a glorious testimony that the church of God will exist and abide in opposition to all the gates of hell, and likewise teaches which is the true church of God, lest we be offended by the great authority of the false church. Romans 9, 24, 25. From this article also, powerful admonitions and warnings are derived. As Luke seven thirty, they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Luke fourteen twenty four, I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Also Matthew twenty sixteen, Many be called, but few chosen. Also Luke 8, 8, 18. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear, and take heed how ye hear. Thus the doctrine concerning this article can be employed profitably, comfortingly, and savingly. But a distinction must be observed with a special care between that which is expressly revealed concerning it in God's word and what is not revealed. For in addition to what has been revealed in Christ concerning this, of which we have hitherto spoken, God has still kept secret and concealed much concerning this mystery and reserved it for his wisdom and knowledge alone, which we should not investigate, nor should we indulge our thoughts in this matter, nor draw conclusions nor inquire curiously, but should adhere, adhere to the revealed word of God. This admonition is most urgently needed. For our curiosity has always much more pleasure in concerning itself with these matters than with what God has revealed to us concerning this in his word, because we cannot harmonize it, which, moreover, we have not been commanded to do, Thus there is no doubt that God most exactly and certainly foresaw before the time of the world and still knows which of those that are called will believe or will not believe, also which of the converted will persevere and which will not persevere, which will return after a fall and which will fall into obduracy. So too the number, how many there are of these on either side, is beyond all doubt perfectly known to God.
However, since God has reserved this mystery for his wisdom and has revealed nothing to us concerning it in his word, much less commanded us to investigate it with our thoughts, but has earnestly discouraged us therefrom, we should not reason in our thoughts, draw conclusions, nor inquire curiously into these matters, but should adhere to his revealed word to which he points us. Thus, without any doubt, God also knows and has determined for everyone the time and hour of his call and conversion. But since this has not been revealed to us, we have the command always to keep urging the word, but to entrust the time and hour of conversion to God. Acts 1.7 Likewise, when we see that God gives his word at one place, but not at another, removes it from one place and allows it to remain at another, also that one is hardened, blinded, given over to a reprobate mind, while another, who is indeed in the same guilt, is converted again, etc. In these and similar questions, Paul fixes a certain limit to us how far we should go, namely, that in the one part we should recognize God's judgment, for they are well-deserved penalties of sins when God so punishes a land or nation for despising his word that the punishment extends also to their posterity, as is to be seen in the Jews. And thereby God in some lands and persons exhibits his severity to those that are his, what we all often, what we all would have well deserved, and would be worthy and worth, since we act wickedly in opposition to God's word, and often grieve the Holy Ghost sorely, in order that we may live in the fear of God, and acknowledge and praise God's goodness, to the exclusion of, and contrary to, our merit in and with us, to whom he gives his word, and with whom he leaves it, and whom he does not harden and reject. For inasmuch as our nature has been corrupted by sin, and is worthy of and subject to God's wrath and condemnation, God owes to us neither the word, the spirit, nor grace. And when he bestows these gifts out of grace, we often thrust them from us, and make ourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Acts 13.46 And this, his righteous, well-deserved judgment, he displays in some countries, nations, and persons, in order that when we are placed alongside of them and compared with them, we may learn the more diligently to recognize and praise God's pure, unmerited grace in the vessels of mercy. For no injustice is done those who are punished and receive the wages of their sins, but in the rest, to whom God gives and preserves his word, by which men are enlightened, converted and preserved, God commends his pure grace and mercy without their merit. When we proceed thus far in this article, we remain on the right way as it is written, Hosea 13, 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. However, as regards these things in this disputation which would soar too high and beyond these limits, we should, with Paul, place the finger upon our lips and remember and say Romans 9.20, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? 
For that we neither can nor should investigate and fathom everything in this article. The great Apostle Paul declares, who, after having argued much concerning this article from the revealed Word of God, as soon as he comes to the point where he shows what God has reserved for his hidden wisdom concerning this mystery, suppresses and cuts it off with the following words, Romans 11.33. O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? that is, outside of and beyond that which he has revealed to us in his word. Accordingly, this eternal election of God is to be considered in Christ and not outside of or without Christ. For in Christ, the Apostle Paul testifies, Ephesians 1.4, He hath chosen us before the foundation of the world, as it is written, He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. This election, however, is revealed from heaven through the preaching of His Word when the Father says, Matthew 17, 6, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye Him. And Christ says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And concerning the Holy Ghost, Christ says, John 16, 14, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Thus the entire Holy Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, directs all men to Christ as to the book of life, in whom they should seek the eternal election of the Father. For this has been decided by the Father from eternity, that whom he would save, he would save through Christ. As he himself says, John 14, 6, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And again, John 10, 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. However, Christ, as the only begotten Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has announced to us the will of the Father and thus also our eternal election to eternal life. Namely, when he says, Mark 1.15, Repent ye and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. Likewise, he says, John 6.40, This is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And again, God so loved the world, etc. This proclamation the Father wishes all men to hear and desires that they come to Christ. And these Christ does not drive from him, as it is written, John 6, 37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And in order that we may come to Christ, the Holy Ghost works true faith through the hearing of the word, as the Apostle testifies when he says, Romans ten seventeen, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God namely, when it is preached in its truth and purity. Therefore, whoever would be saved should not trouble or harass himself with thoughts concerning the secret counsel of God as to whether he also is elected and ordained to eternal life, with which miserable Satan usually attacks and annoys godly hearts, but they should hear Christ, who is the book of life, 
and of God's eternal election of all of God's children to eternal life. He testifies to all men without distinction that it is God's will that all men should come to him who labor and are heavy laden with sin in order that he may give them rest and save them. Matthew 11.28 According to this doctrine of his, they should abstain from their sins, repent, believe his promise, and entirely trust in him. And since we cannot do this by ourselves of our own powers, the Holy Ghost desires to work these things, namely repentance and faith, in us through the word and sacraments. And in order that we may attain this, persevere in it, and remain steadfast, we should implore God for his grace, which he has promised us in holy baptism, and no doubt he will impart it to us according to his promise, as he has said, Luke 11, 11, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And since the Holy Ghost dwells in the elect, who have become believers as in his temple and is not idle in them, but impels the children of God to obedience to God's command, believers likewise should not be idle, and much less resist the impulse of God's Spirit, but should exercise themselves in all Christian virtues, in all godliness, modesty, temperance, patience, brotherly love, and give all diligence to make their calling and election sure, in order that they may doubt the less concerning it, the more they experience the power and strength of the Spirit within them. For the Spirit bears witness to the elect that they are God's children, Romans 8.16. And although they sometimes fall into the temptation so grievous that they imagine they perceive no more power of the indwelling Spirit of God, and say with David, Psalm 31.22, I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Yet they should, without regard to what they experience in themselves, again say with David, as, it is, as is written Ibidem, in the words immediately following, Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. And since our election to eternal life is, not found, is founded not upon our godliness or virtue, but alone upon the merit of Christ and the gracious will of his Father, who cannot deny himself, because he is unchangeable in will and essence. Therefore, when his children depart from obedience and stumble, he, is, he has them called again to repentance through the word, and the Holy Ghost wishes thereby to be efficacious in them for conversion. And when they turn to him again in true repentance by a right faith, he will always manifest the old paternal heart to all those who tremble at his word, and from their heart turn again to him. As it is written, Jeremiah 3, 1, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet, return again to me, saith the Lord. Moreover, the declaration, John 6, that no one can come to Christ except the Father draw him, 
is right and true. However, the Father will not do this without means, but has ordained for this purpose his word and sacraments as ordinary means and instruments. And it is the will neither of the Father nor of the Son that a man should not hear or should despise the preaching of his word, and wait for the drawing of the Father without the word and sacraments. For the Father draws indeed by the power of his Holy Ghost. However, according to his usual order, by the hearing of his holy divine word, as with a net, by which the elect are plucked from the jaws of the devil. Every poor sinner should therefore repair thereto, hear it attentively, and not doubt the drawing of the Father. For the Holy Ghost will be with his word in his power and work by it, and that is the drawing of the Father. But the reason why not all who hear it believe, and some are therefore condemned the more deeply, is not because God had begrudged them their salvation, but it is their own fault, as they have heard the word in such a manner as not to learn, but only to despise, blaspheme, and disgrace it, and have resisted the Holy Ghost, who through the word wished to work in them, as was the case at the time of Christ with the Pharisees and their adherents. Hence the apostle distinguishes with especial care the work of God, who alone makes vessels of honor, and the work of the devil and of man, who by the instigation of the devil and not of God, has made himself a vessel of dishonor. For thus it is written, Romans 9.22, God endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Here then, the apostle clearly says that God endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, but does not say that he made them vessels of wrath. For if this had been his will, he would not have required any great long suffering for it. The fault, however, that they are fitted for destruction belongs to the devil and to men themselves and not to God. For all preparation for condemnation is by the devil and man, through sin, and in no respect by God, who does not wish that any man be damned. How then should he himself prepare any man for condemnation? For as God is not a cause of sins, so too he is no cause of punishment of damnation. But the only cause of damnation is sin, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 And as God does not will sin and has no pleasure in sin, so he does not wish the death of the sinner either, Ezekiel 33.11, nor has he pleasure in his condemnation. For he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. So too, it is written in Ezekiel 18.23, 33.11, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And St. Paul testifies in clear words that from vessels of dishonor, vessels of honor may be made by God's power and working, when he writes thus, 2 Timothy 2.21, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work, 
For he who is to purge himself must first have been unclean, and hence a vessel of dishonor. But concerning the vessels of mercy, he says clearly that the Lord himself has prepared them for glory, which he does not say concerning the damned, who themselves, and not God, have prepared themselves as vessels of damnation. Moreover, it is to be diligently considered that when God punishes sin with sins, that is, when he afterwards punishes with obduracy and blindness those who had been converted, because of their subsequent security, impenitence, and willful sins, this should not be interpreted to mean that it had never been God's good pleasure that such persons should come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. For both these facts are God's revealed will. First, that God will receive into grace all who repent and believe in Christ. Secondly, that he also will punish those who willfully turn away from the holy commandment and again entangle themselves in the filth of the world, 2 Peter 2.20, and garnish their hearts for Satan, Luke 11.25, and do despise unto the Spirit of God, Hebrews 10.29, and that they shall be hardened, blinded, and eternally condemned if they persist therein. Accordingly, even Pharaoh, of whom it is written Exodus 9.16, Romans 9.17, In very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth, perished, not because God had begrudged him salvation, or because it had been his good pleasure that he should be damned and lost, for God is not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3.9 He also has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 33.11 But that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, namely that Pharaoh always sinned again and again and became the more obdurate, the more he was admonished. That was a punishment of his antecedent sin and horrible tyranny which in many and manifold ways he practiced inhumanly and against the accusations of his heart towards the children of Israel. And since God caused his word to be preached and his will to be proclaimed to him, and Pharaoh nevertheless willfully reared up straightway against all admonitions and warnings, God withdrew his hand from him, and thus his heart became hardened and obdurate and God executed his judgment upon him, for he was guilty of nothing else than hell fire. Accordingly, the holy apostle also introduces the example of Pharaoh for no other reason than to prove by it the justice of God which he exercises towards the impenitent and despisers of his word. By no means, however, has he intended or understood it to mean that God begrudged salvation to him or any person, but had so ordained him to eternal damnation in his secret counsel that he should not be able or that it should not be possible for him to be saved. By this doctrine and explanation of the eternal and saving choice of the elect children of God, his own glory is entirely and fully given to God. 
that in Christ he saves us out of pure mercy, without any merits or good works of ours, according to the purpose of his will, as it is written Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Therefore it is false and wrong when it is taught that not alone the mercy of God and the most holy merit of Christ, but that also in us there is a cause of God's election, on account of which God has chosen us to eternal life. For not only before we had done anything good, but also before we were born, yea, even before the foundations of the world were laid, he elected us in Christ, and that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written concerning this matter, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans 9.11, Genesis 25.23, Malachi 1.2 Moreover, this doctrine gives no one a cause either for despondency or for a shameless, dissolute life, namely, when men are taught that they must seek eternal election in Christ and his holy gospel, as in the book of life, which excludes no penitent sinner, but beckons and calls all the poor, heavy-laden, and troubled sinners to repentance and the knowledge of their sins and to faith in Christ, and promises the Holy Ghost for purification and renewal, and thus gives the most enduring consolation to all troubled, afflicted men that they know that their salvation is not placed in their own hands, for otherwise they would lose it much more easily than was the case with Adam and Eve in paradise. Yea, every hour and moment, but in the gracious election of God, which he has revealed to us in Christ, out of whose hand no man shall pluck us. John 10, 28, 2 Timothy 2, 19. Accordingly, if anyone presents the doctrine concerning the gracious election of God in such a manner that troubled Christians cannot derive comfort from it, but are thereby incited to despair, or that the impenitent are confirmed in their wantonness, it is undoubtedly sure and true that such a doctrine is taught not according to the word and will of God, but according to reason and the instigation of the devil." For as the Apostle testifies, Romans 15.4, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. But when this consolation and hope are weakened or entirely removed by Scripture, it is certain that it is understood and explained contrary to the will and meaning of the Holy Ghost. By this simple, correct, useful explanation, which has a firm and good foundation in God's revealed will, we abide. We flee from and shun all lofty, acute questions and disputations, and reject and condemn whatever is contrary to these simple, useful explanations. So much concerning the controverted articles which have been discussed for many years already among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession, in which some have erred and severe controversiae 
that is, religious disputes have arisen. From this, our explanation, friends and enemies, and therefore everyone, may clearly infer that we have no intention of yielding aught of the eternal, immutable truth of God for the sake of temporal peace, tranquility, and unity, which, moreover, is not in our power to do. Nor would such peace and unity, since it is devised against the truth and for its suppression, have any permanency. Still less are we inclined to adorn and conceal a corruption of the pure doctrine and manifest condemned errors. But we entertain heartfelt pleasure and love for, and are on our part, sincerely inclined and anxious to advance that unity according to our utmost power, by which his glory remains to God uninjured. Nothing of the divine truth of the Holy Gospel is surrendered. No room is given to the least error. Poor sinners are brought to true, genuine repentance, raised up by faith, confirmed in new obedience, and thus justified and eternally saved alone through the sole merit of Christ. Article 12. Other Factions, Heresies, and Sects, which never embraced the Augsburg Confession. However, as regards the sects and factions which have never embraced the Augsburg Confession, and of which express mention has not been made in this our explanation, such as are the Anabaptists, Schwenkfeldians, New Arians, and Anti-Trinitarians, whose errors have been unanimously condemned by all churches of the Augsburg Confession. We have not wished to make particular and especial mention of them in this explanation, for the reason that at the present time this has been our only aim, that we might, above all, refute the charges of our adversaries, the Papists. Since our opponents alleged with shameless mouths and decried throughout all the world our churches and their teachers, claiming that not two preachers are found who agree in each and every article of the Augsburg Confession, but that they are rent asunder and separated from one another to such an extent that they themselves no longer know what is the Augsburg Confession and its proper sense, we have not made a joint confession only in brief words or names but wish to make a pure, clear, distinct declaration concerning all the disputed articles which have been discussed and controverted only among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession, in order that every one may see that we do not wish in a cunning manner to dissemble or cover up all this, or come to an agreement only in appearance, but to remedy the matter thoroughly, and have wished to set forth our opinion of these matters in such a manner that even our adversaries themselves must confess that in all this we abide by the true, simple, natural, and proper sense of the Augsburg Confession, in which we desire moreover by God's grace to persevere constantly until our end, and so far as it depends on our service, we will not connive at or be silent, lest anything contrary to the same is introduced into our churches and schools, in which the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has appointed us teachers and pastors. However, 
lest there be silently ascribed to us the condemned errors of the above enumerated factions and sects, which, as is the nature of such spirits, for the most part, secretly stole in at localities, and especially at a time when no place or room was given to the pure word of the Holy Gospel. But all its sincere teachers and confessors were persecuted, and the deep darkness of the papacy still prevailed, and poor simple men could not help, who could not help but feel the manifest idolatry and false faith of the papacy, in their simplicity, alas, embraced whatever was called the gospel and was not papistic. We could not forbear testifying also against them publicly, before all Christendom, that we have neither part nor fellowship with their errors, be they many or few, but reject and condemn them one and all, as wrong and heretical, and contrary to the scriptures of the prophets and apostles, and to our Christian Augsburg confession, well grounded in God's word. Erroneous Errors of the Anabaptists Namely, for instance, the erroneous heretical doctrines of the Anabaptists, which are to be tolerated and allowed neither in the church nor in the commonwealth, nor in domestic life, when they teach, one, that our righteousness before God consists not only in the sole obedience and merit of Christ, but in our renewal and our own piety in which we walk before God, which they, for the most part, base upon their own peculiar ordinances and self-chosen spirituality, as upon a new sort of monkery. Two, that children who are not baptized are not sinners before God, but righteous and innocent, and thus are saved in their innocency without baptism, which they do not need. Accordingly, they deny and reject the entire doctrine concerning original sin and what belongs to it. 3. That children are not to be baptized until they have attained the use of reason and can confess their faith themselves. 4. That the children of Christians, since they have been born of Christian and believing parents, are holy, and the children of God even without and before baptism. And for this reason, they neither attach much importance to the baptism of children nor encourage it, contrary to the express words of the promise, which extends only to, to those who keep God's covenant and do not despise it. Genesis 17.9 5. That a congregation in which sinners are still found is no true Christian assembly. 6. That no sermon should be heard or attended in those churches in which the papal masses have previously been said. 7. That no one should have anything to do with those ministers of the church who preach the Holy Gospel according to the Confession and rebuke the errors of Baptists. Also that no one should serve or in any way labor for them, but should flee from and shun them as perverters of God's word. 8. That under the New Testament, the magistracy is not a godly estate. 9. That a Christian cannot, with a good inviolate conscience, hold the office of magistrate. 10 that a Christian cannot without injury to conscience use the office of the 
magistracy in matters that may occur against the wicked. Neither can its subjects appeal to its power. 11. That a Christian cannot with a good conscience take an oath before a court, nor with an oath do homage to his prince or hereditary sovereign. 12. That magistrates cannot without injury to conscience inflict capital punishment upon evildoers. 13. That a Christian cannot with a good conscience hold or possess any property, but is in duty bound to devote it to the common treasury. 14. That a Christian cannot with a good conscience be an innkeeper, merchant, or cutler. 15. That married persons may be divorced on account of faith, and that the one may abandon the other and be married to another of his own faith. 16. That Christ did not assume his flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, but brought them with him from heaven. 17. That he is not true essential God either, but only has more and higher gifts and glory than other men. And still more articles of like kind, for they are divided among themselves into many bands, and one has more and another fewer errors, and thus their entire sect is in reality nothing but a new kind of monkery. Erroneous Articles of the Schwenkfeldians Likewise, when the Schwenkfeldians assert, 1. That all those who have no knowledge of the reigning King of Heaven, Christ, who regard Christ according to the flesh, or his assumed humanity as a creature, and that the flesh of Christ has by exaltation so assumed all divine properties that in might, power, majesty, and glory he is in every respect, in degree, and position of essence equal to the Father and the eternal Word, so that there is the same essence, properties, will, and glory of both natures in Christ, and that the flesh of Christ belongs to the essence of the Holy Trinity. 2 that the ministry of the church, the word preached and heard, is not a means whereby God the Holy Ghost teaches men and works in them saving knowledge of Christ, conversion, repentance, faith, and new obedience. 3. That the water of baptism is not a means by which God the Lord seals adoption and works regeneration. 4 that bread and wine in the Holy Supper are not means by which Christ distributes his body and blood. 5. That a Christian man who is truly regenerated by God's Spirit can in this life keep and fulfill the law of God perfectly. 6. six that a congregation in which no public excommunication or the regular process of the ban is observed is no true Christian congregation. 7. That the minister of the church, who is not on his part truly renewed, righteous, and godly, cannot teach other men without, with profit or administer real, true sacraments. Erroneous Articles of the New Arians also, when the new Arians teach that Christ is not a true, essential, natural God of one eternal divine essence with God the Father, 
but is only adorned with divine majesty inferior to and beside God the Father. Erroneous Articles of the New Anti-Trinitarians 1. Also, when some anti-Trinitarians reject and condemn the ancient approved Zimbola, Nicianum et Athanasianum, the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, as regards both their sense and words, and teach that there is not only one eternal divine essence of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but as there are three distinct persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, so each person has also its essence distinct and separate from the other persons. Yet that all three are either as otherwise three men distinct and separate in their essence of the same power, wisdom, majesty, and glory, or in essence and properties unequal. 2. That the Father alone is true God. These and like articles, one and all, with what pertains to them and follows from them, we reject and condemn as wrong, false, heretical, and contrary to the Word of God, the Three Creeds, the Augsburg Confession and Apology, the Small Cult Articles, and the Catechisms of Luther. Of these articles, all godly Christians should and ought to beware, as much as the welfare and salvation of their souls is dear to them. Since now, in the sight of God and of all Christendom, we wish to testify to those now living and those who shall come after us, that this declaration herewith presented concerning all the controverted articles aforementioned and explained, and no other, is our faith, doctrine, and confession, in which we are also willing, by God's grace, to appear with intrepid hearts before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and give an account of it, and that we will neither privately nor publicly speak or write anything contrary to it, but by the help of God's grace, intend to abide thereby. Therefore, after mature deliberation, we have, in God's fear and with the invocation of his name, attached our signatures with our own hands.